you want dirty harry's on the street sitting at a hot dog shop you know and knowing before they've even sat down that they're gonna have to walk outside and create a massive action movie shootout and then walk away with just some buckshot on your leg you know like you gotta have those people on that wall you need to have a few good men in this world even if they are bad people and harry callahan maybe not a bad person not the best but he's he's the hero that the 70s needed and he set the tone for all kinds of different characters over the years the anti-hero the anti-authoritarian you know like like you don't have john wick you know unless you have dirty harry to begin with the people who made this movie had a worldview very different from the critics of the time and very very different from the critics of today so i there might not be a future within you know cinema to appreciate this movie but i think people should just watch it enjoy it for what it is podcast i am matt and that is chuck and this is episode number two today we, we begin our fourth director retrospective by going back further than we've ever gone before to the 1970s those far out times when serial killers stalked the streets free love was threatening your marriage and your kids were turning into drugged out hippies and there was only one man to stop it all that's right we're reviewing dirty harry in part one of our look at the films of Don Siegel. Back in the present, we've got one massive news umbrella story to cover. <laughs> Turns out it's rush week at Disney. Did your favorite corporate stooge make the cut? Then in the watch list, this week marks the return of two of our favorite TV shows. And as always, this all precedes the mentionable and Chuck and I naming our picks of the week. Timestamps are below in the episode description. Like, subscribe, all that jazz. But that's the business end of the show. Chuck, I'll turn it over to you. There's just something about the decade of the 70s. You know, like, there's something in the air. Lalo Scherfen music is just... He just did the soundtrack for that whole decade, I feel. Even though it began in the 60s. But he, the man did some crazy things. He was pretty far out with his work in this movie. I'll, just, I'll say that as a mm. teaser. But yeah, you did not want to be one of those poor losers who got a pink slip at Disney because it's the Ides of Mouse. It's all coming to an end. If you were around for a decade, if you were around for a week, it didn't matter. You were getting the cut. You were getting the boot and there was or something. But we don't really know what's going to happen with this man quite yet. We'll, we'll, we're just going to say this right now, right off the bat. 
we're not going to get into the, the nitty gritty bullshit. Like, we're not going to be looking at affidavits. I do that on my day job. Thank you very much. I don't need to read his police report. All I care about is, well, aren't they just going to do the obvious thing and just do some wibbly wobbly timey wimey bullshit and just slap someone else in there? Why don't they? I don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it all has to do with timing because if this exact same event, so what we're talking about here, just Jonathan to give Majors. the most, yeah. yeah, Jonathan Majors, the most basic version of the story. Uh, last Saturday night, uh, he was arrested um, for assault um, against his girlfriend. Um, they've, they've done a really, really bad job of keeping it. The, her identity secret because they were supposed to but it's clearly his girlfriend that he was um you know had these charges brought against him for and since then there's been very little movement legal like legally about this so um that's kind of everything we know for a fact i mean there's all this other stuff out there now his his lawyer is running like major damage control and releasing text messages now but big mistake um, she is fucking everything up his lawyer yeah, like, probably <laughs> we'll leave that for the drama channels but yeah that's just my point of view on it but so it all what i was saying is it all has to go to do with timing because had this event happened but just transplant planted in like late january or like the beginning of february 100 mm -hmm. he would have been fired by now because that would have been the lead up to the latest ant-man movie and they they would have been forced to make a decision and because we're kind of in the post ant-man 3 world now where disney has made you know 90 95 of the money they're ever going to make on that movie has already been made and so they have a little bit of time here to just kind of simmer on this and let things play out. And then, you know, they'll make a decision before the next time we see his character, which will be Loki season two, which which was going to come out this summer. But I think that is now probably in jeopardy even. So, um, yeah, I guess that's kind of where I where I sit on why he hasn't been fired yet. Um, but, yeah, what's what do you think? You know, at the, on one hand. I, I do think that maybe they took a look at what happened with the, the quick dismissal of Justin Roiland and how that whole thing worked out. But what's crazy about that is that that was a court case that had been quietly and without outside of anyone's eye been happening for like a year or so. And this is something we knew about the moment it fucking happened. So it's, it's going to take even longer for whatever happened here to work itself out. And I think it, unless they have him like dead to rights on a morality clause violation, because in the post Me Too Hollywood morality clauses, you know, exist in much the same way as they did back when the church ran things, you know. But it, yeah, it, in this instance, I'm gonna I'm not gonna go men's rights activist on it here, but it almost does seem like, you know, to an extent that maybe you know, like protocol and just like the oh, woman calls police and there might have been abuse going on by default the man is arrested that's what happens in new york state and in mm -hmm. the you know and that you know has its own problems but the the reality of it is it could have been something that could have, you know, she maybe was just having a psychic break psychotic break and he called the police about it and now he's paying the consequences for it should he have everything stripped from him i'd be i don't think so but whether or not disney's going to do it i think they absolutely are the, 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 but it's unfortunate because he was the one thing 
that this whole phase whatever five four had going for it he was the only interesting thing and he was and he was the through line from the tv to the cinema and now the it's just this big question mark and well i guess we're gonna have to see because like there's a whole culling happening across you know the whole company essentially at this point if if you're a tv project like loki yeah it's suspect they might just cut their losses there and like leave him out of it and just rewrite it so that they can still get it out but tv isn't really making them money anymore they're not getting the disney plus subscription numbers that they would like from what i gather from what i've been hearing yeah yeah well um let me ask you this if hypothetically say he does get uh fired what what do they do like what do they do because they've been you know they're still in the beginning stages of building up this villain as sort of the thanos of this next these next three phases and so what what do you think disney should do as far as their their villain problem that's a a good question because either you find a totally new villain or you just you know just say oh no that like it's actually this incarnation that looks like this that you have to worry about and it's not the jonathan majors um you know, you know kang anymore it's um michael fassbender with blue paint on you know or something like that like they just find some other actor to stick into the role but they could also just go completely you know crazy and just go with a new villain just find a totally different villain to be the big bad and just have this whole thing be a unfortunate exercise in futility as far as the storytelling is concerned. Was there anything else you wanted to say about, about this situation before we move on? Yeah. I just yeah. wanted to give my thoughts on that, that last point. Um, yeah. So like basically, you know, they could, I mean, Disney has experience with this with Don Cheadle and Terrence Howard. So they can just pull one of those and act like nothing ever happened. But, um, you know, Ant-Man ended on them defeating Kang. So in all, you know, likelihood, they could just act as if Kang was the villain for that movie and then just say that those after credit scenes at the end of Ant-Man are just a wash. And, you know, they just, you just wash them out and, and pretend like they never existed. And, you know, Kang was the villain for Ant-Man and just Ant-Man. Um, so they could do that. But, you know, I think they should, you know, nobody, nobody really liked Ant-Man. And a lot of people are very down on the MCU right now between that movie and Eternals and um, all of the TV shows. And so, you know, in some ways they could use this as an opportunity to revitalize the MCU by doing Dr. Doom, because that's what they really should have been doing this whole time is Dr. Doom. That's what everybody wants. That's what everybody's been calling for. And for some reason, you know, they, they're, they're, they've had him on the back burner. I feel like, I feel like they are going to get to him eventually, but I think now's the time. Now's the if, time. If this, yeah. Yeah. It's unless they're going to pull Galactus out of their fucking asses, you know, and just, you know, and just go full fantastic four on this, but we need a fantastic four movie to do that. So they're, they're just kind of full of shit. In my opinion, they need to figure their shit out, whatever it is. Cause yeah, like there, there, there's no coherence to this storytelling, no urgency to it either. And that's been the, the biggest beef I have with a lot of Disney Marvel Lucasfilm projects. I'm looking at you, Mandalorian. You're getting really fucking boring, but yeah. that's a, that's a different conversation. 
the major problem for Marvel going forward is that they are losing one of their key cogs in the machine. The thing that kept those those grubby little animators working at their workstations, pumping those pixels out and getting those 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 giant you know widescreen comic highlight reels going. And you know that lady was Victoria Alonso, and she has an interesting career. She was an actress, an actress who realized, oh, I have no power. So then she became a producer and somehow became like the post-production executive for fucking Marvel. And now she's not because apparently she violated her contract by promoting a movie she produced that, you know, was Oscar nominated Argentina in 1985. And this is a juicy little story. It's very funny. It's very weird that this is so brazen and out in the open like this because Disney was just like, yeah, she's she's fucked. She's gone. She's she's chopped liver. We're done with her forever. Fuck her. And now lawsuits. Like, how many lawsuits is this company going to have to deal with just to <laughs> get rid of all the administrative bloat they apparently have? Oh, man, it's yeah, it's it's going to be rough. Um, speaking of rough, did you read like the vanity or no, it wasn't Vanity Fair. It was Variety, the Variety article about this. Yeah. How how absolutely brutal that opening paragraph was, because I would encourage anybody to go look at it right now, because it's basically they they recall this story recently from the uh, uh, the premiere of. Um, oh, God, what was it? It, it might have been... Uh, it was Argentina 1985, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, and she she was on the red carpet, and she saw that two of the photographers on the red carpet were females, and she called them over and made them take pictures with her, and then she said, like, like two women photographers, us women, we aren't going anywhere, and then eight days later, she's fired. It's just absolutely brutal how they framed the whole article on, on Variety, but... Um, yeah, it's it's kind of I mean, it makes sense. She um, was running the VFX department into the ground. People have been complaining all over, you know, uh, the complaining parts of the Internet, like Reddit and 4chan and stuff about their their um, their jobs, their VFX jobs um, and how, you know, Marvel was running them into the ground, you know, after hours, late hours, bad pay. Um, death schedules it's the baton death march of, yeah, of, of, of of visual effects animation and now like yeah. a lot of those companies are being like yeah we're not going to fucking work for you anymore disney get fucked oh you need mando to look good we're not going to do that for you anymore because of this lady and, yeah and so she ran that department into the ground and you know beyond that um i don't know she's she's out there saying like you know accusations of sexism accusations of racism but it's like I don't know if that really holds water because why then did they allow you to work at this company for 17 years and then just suddenly like, oh, we're racist now. You know, we yeah. just decided we're so it's like because that doesn't yeah. really hold water. Because here's the deal. They took her cue on her and Kevin Feige's cue on who to hire. Like, you know, like all of the people who populate Marvel Studios, you know, are like are there because they agree and think exactly like alonzo and feige do you know like they are prophets of the message as it were and they the message will carry on forward and that message is very progressive that message is exactly her values and her virtues despite bumping heads with the state of florida and you know like those political realities but yeah like it makes no th this company is totally 
down for her identity politics. They just didn't think she did a good job and they had cause to show her the door. So yeah, this lawsuit is going to be quite, quite frivolous when you, when it, when it gets right down to it. But I believe she has hired the same attorney as our next segment. Okay. If, if, if you're ready to move on to it, because Kathleen yeah. Kennedy also had a pretty fucking bad month. This is kind of old news for the internet, but you know, Kathleen Kennedy is also getting sued by a producer named Karen McCarthy and Karen McCarthy and Victoria Alonzo have the same lawyer. And I, I, that is well, also chef's kiss today, but Kathleen Kennedy is in deep trouble. She hired this lady to she wooed her she courted her she stole her from apple tv plus because they have a show with colin farrell called sugar a detective series that they were like hey work come work for us and she was like actually i got a better offer i'm gonna work in star wars multi-year contract all those royalties and residuals you know she's gonna have it made she's gonna be one of the most powerful female producers in the industry and then after like relocating and like signing the i think contracts were signed she was working they were just like, no, you're fired. We're, we don't want to move forward with this contract. Here's $5,000. Yeah. To, yeah to, apparently she did one day's work. She literally worked for one day on the show. And then, and the, yeah, yeah. And then they're just like, here's five grand. And yeah, see you later. And, see you later. And um, I don't know. This is like, I, I think out of all these stories, this is probably the one that I have the least to say about only because... <laughs> Kathleen Kennedy has been a monster for a long time, and this is just her continuing to be a monster and yeah. continuing to continuing to run Star Wars into the ground. And, you know, and for that matter, probably Indiana Jones, too. I mean, we'll see. But yeah, yeah. If, if you believe the scuttlebutt from the the, the 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 completely unverifiable and, you know, like weirdo you know sets of youtube commentators and like rumor mongers like doomcock or like midnight's edge they have been feasting on this but then i remind myself these are the same dudes who have been telling me for five years that this woman was going to be shown the door and it hasn't happened like how long can she keep getting away with it you know it's like she is like donald trump it's like when is she gonna get indicted oh maybe soon but when you get down to it she is in control until her contract is up, from what I understand. And it was just a question of, well, am I going to get all of my shows out so I can maximize my golden parachute or what? And if you believe the rumor mongers, Iger had a one on one with her and made it clear that she was going to be taken you know, out and skinned if you know, Indy 5 didn't turn a profit because nothing ha like she and she also one of the other things is getting an actual star wars movie in theaters before 2024 and there's no human way that that could happen no it's not feasible 2025 because yeah the gears aren't moving it's not obvious that they have anything in place for you know the the, the theater anymore for star wars because they keep on canceling those projects like D D, benioff and weiss were going to be doing a star wars thing Ryan Johnson yeah. was going to be doing a Star Wars thing. Three or four other people have had Star Wars projects lined up and go away. And it's like, well, who is doing anything with Star Wars besides Filoni and Favreau? And I'm losing faith in those guys, too. <laughs> like, Gilroy is the only reason for me to come back. Yeah. Yeah, it, it continues to be a huge miracle that, you know, that show even is still a thing. Because at this point... Star Wars, for the most part, other than Gilroy, is such like a, 
it's such a it's it's a tainted like product and i see all these announcements for these directors that are signing up to do star wars stuff um like, like the daniels skeleton. yeah daniels yeah. and i'm like what are what are you doing you're you're going to you're going to destroy your career before it even began and like yeah daniels and then the other day um uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, Green Knight guy, David Lowry, yeah. signed up for to do a couple episodes of that same show, Star Wars Skeleton Crew, and so it's like, you know, you wonder what these guys are thinking, and it's probably the money. That's yeah, probably. it's probably what it is. So let's yeah. move on from Kathleen Kennedy because they just keep on coming. Our man, our man with the plan on the inside, Mister Toy Biz himself, Ike Perlmutter, his his reign of terror has finally ended. You know, he he finally got dusted, as it were, because they, they, they these aren't the only layoffs. Like, there's like 6,997 other people who lost their jobs. Yeah. But, like, why did why did it take so long to wrest this man, you know, from you know, the, the control panel of Marvel? Like, how is he dug in so tight? <laughs> I'm guessing that it probably has to do with his position... Um, going into uh, the Disney uh, buyout of Marvel because if people don't know, um, Perlmutter was like the the chairman of Marvel when Disney bought them, and I'm sure he stipulated all of these things in his contract after Disney bought bought them. And um, yeah, basically he he was in charge of Marvel Studios or he had a big hand in Marvel Studios up until about 2015. And then Kevin Feige basically showed him the door and they, they created a new, like, like basically a token, uh, uh, division called Marvel Entertainment that was literally just like toys and comics. And, um, they they basically just were like, Hey, go do your thing over there. Well, well, we don't pay attention to you essentially. And so he's been doing that since 2015 and, um, word on like the street is that he's always been trying to get back at Fihe. He's tried to get him fired multiple times. And then he was also the one, he was the guy who was backing, um, this attempted coup that happened mm -hmm. back in February. And so he's just, yeah, he's stirring up too much shit and you know, Iger's back now for his, you know, his two-year stint that he's going to do now before he goes back into retirement. And Iger just wants to, you know, probably wanted to get him out before his stint is over. And, um, yeah, he's he's been a bad, he's been a really bad influence on this entire, this entire company for the longest time. And it's good that he's gone because he, he's like notoriously cheap where he would make people like reuse like post-it notes and, and like paper other office supplies. Too. Yeah, and like paper clips, and and um, he also said that like nobody nobody's interested in a Black Panther movie or like a Captain Marvel movie, and he just very he, wrong about that. Yeah, yeah, extremely wrong, and so um, yeah, he, it's good he's gone. But we feel kind of bad for everybody else because like this is a it's 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 across all the divisions of the company, right? It's not just strictly Disney. It's Lucasfilm lost some, Marvel lost some, theme parks lost some. So yes. yeah, it and a, a lot of this is, and also the, a, a lot of like thousands of those people were in their meta division, actually, like the you know the metaverse. Are you familiar with that? <laughs> yeah, I know you like are. Their VR division. Yeah, because because the the whole world is bailing out on Zuckerberg's little project. 
they all were into it until they realized that no one fucking uses it and so yeah all those people who were busy getting all that shit ready for the disney metaverse are now you know job searching and everything that they've been doing for the last year is a, a dead industry unfortunately because yeah vr hasn't taken off quite enough that you know everyone is more excited about looking at nintendo wii graphics right in front of their eyeballs because that's what it, it reminded me of like oh yeah that was a barn burner that's the the ides of mouse the night of the long knives everybody got you know got a little bit of what little bobby was throwing out there then david zaslav is just fading in the back just like <laughs> i was right you know he set the tone for the whole industry last year when he started gutting warner brothers and Iger realized he needed to do the same thing. Time to move on to the watch list. Speaking of gutting your corporate enemies, Succession is back. <laughs> and it is, you know, back with a vengeance, but it was melancholy. I'm just going to put that out there. Watching, you know, Roy try and get all of his, like, toadies to banter with him and crack jokes like his kids always used to, because he kept them around because it, they kept things fun and whatnot and now that he just has all these sycophants that you know don't challenge him and don't provide him anything that he can enjoy so he's more miserable now than he ever has been in his life that's my feeling after this first episode but overall how did you receive it yeah i mean this was you know it's a return to form and i i will say that there is there's two types of succession episodes there are the episodes that are just like completely incredible all the way through and then there are episodes that are kind of slow to start but then you know they ramp up and they ramp up and they ramp up and by the end they're just amazing and that's kind of like what this episode was where you know it's it's the first episode of the season we get a lot of sort of introductory scenes with the the roy children you know just talking about their new company what they are going to do what they aren't going to do and then um you know, I think the episode really hit its stride once, like, Logan, he, I mean, he's watching his sort of world crumble around him, and, you know, he goes that he goes to a, a diner with Colin, his bodyguard, and that scene is, yeah, so incredible, just like, you're my pal, right? You're my pal, and then he doesn't even, he asks the guy a question and doesn't even let him get a word out before he just interrupts him again, and, and it's just brutal, and yeah and speaking of brutal oh my god that, that final scene yes oh, oh that hurt god. so good though the, yeah. the, those fuckers those two people needed to to just do that because i'm just gonna put this out there there's a reason why you know fidelity is important in a marriage no matter what you know even if you are in an open relationship you got to be faithful in your own fucking twisted way and these two individuals were you know bound to reach this moment from the like episode one when they first showed up on this fucking show i knew that this moment was coming especially after last how last season ended but god no yeah it just stopped being fun him and greg being the the, the disgusting brothers you know it, <laughs> like once it you know it's like oh no like they have really just sullied and the like, rich people are gross man that's like the, this show reinforces that to a an enormous degree but that moment was devastating i loved it so much yeah it was it was just like the perfect end cap to that episode because yeah they're just two people who they're both you know there's so much uns there's so much left unsaid there when they should be talking and they right. just don't they don't commiserate they 
you know, they're they're clearly so terrible for each other, but they don't want to admit it. But then at the same time, they don't want to, you know, they, they do want a divorce, but they don't want a divorce. It's just like, it's just an awful situation all the way around. And um, yeah, but that, that was great. And uh, oh, and then I love the scene um, with uh, the Pierce family where Nan Pierce has to like pretend like she's disgusted by the the like the, the wheeling and dealing, and she's just like, you know, like oh, this is this is so disgusting. You know, I I'm a working class liberal, and this is disgusting. But then you know they say ten million or ten billion, and you know her eyes go wide, and she's like, that'll do fine. You know, like yeah, that, that's a, just... that's a hell of a deal, man. That's great for them. So. Yeah we know this so now we're just counting down like it's finally sinking in for me how many episodes are left nine if nine. we're not yep. oh god so what's the trajectory here because now they're they have if i'm remembering the episode right they now own it right or at least like they're going to like the paperwork still needs to be signed but now they have a competing enterprise to their father essentially and they have Correct. and they have some like liquidity now or some whatever some stakes to even go and take another run at buying him or some shit like that again. So I don't know. I really want to see them get this fucking white whale and just put the old man to bed by the end of the show. But I, yeah. I almost have the feeling that they're, they're not going to do that. Something's going to go wrong. Well, that's kind of always, yeah. I mean, that always seems to happen is, you know, somebody, whether it's, you know, Kendall or, or, um, you know, Anybody, well, I mean, it's most of the time it's Kendall, thinks that he's about to get uh, a leg up on his dad, and then he doesn't because his dad is always just two steps ahead of, of him. And um, yeah, I was looking at the, just as far as like the season is concerned, um, the next the next episode is called Rehearsal, and then the third episode of the season is called Connor's Wedding. So that's what we're going to get for the next two episodes. We're oh. going to get the... The rehearsal dinner, probably, and then the actual wedding in the third episode. So then everybody's going to have to come together again. So uh, thank you for bringing up Connor, because, oh, my God, that scene where he's talking about spending another $100 billion to <laughs> hold his 1% of the, the delegates for his presidential campaign. And, like, Willa's just sitting there just like, <laughs> just, like, having to just, like, live with the fact that all that money's just evaporating in front of their eyes yeah. oh it was so good it, it hurts so good mm -hmm. and that's why i'm very happy that this show has returned i just i can't wait for it to get even more brutal and gonzo as it goes along yeah you know same. but now we, we have to talk about a show that's on the rise you know where this is the twilight of you know the one of the heavy hitters that we've had the last four years of the covid era as it were but now we also have the new hotness the yellow jackets they're back on showtime and we finally know who was the first one to take the, the first bite of flesh. And I'm going to leave it there. But it, it's it's I'm very glad that we're moving things along enough to the point where we're going to, you know, where the cannibalism is going to start, because that's the only reason I'm here. <laughs> have you um, just so I know, have you seen episode two yet? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. I haven't had the time to see it. Did, did that come out okay. last night? Yes, yeah. So okay. I'll tell um, anybody who's watching. We're recording um, this on Saturday. Yes, and you can actually add. Um, I was able to add Showtime to my Paramount Plus uh, subscription for literally a dollar. Like it, it was. It went from ten ninety nine a month to eleven ninety nine. Not sure if that's like a 
a promo they're only doing for a certain amount of time. But um, I, I all I know is that it's it's a dollar more and it's it's in perpetuity. I think for me, anyways. Holy and then um, the the episodes. The cool thing about this is that the episodes come out on Fridays on the app. Whereas if you watch, you know, if you watch the show on, you know, TV on cable, they, they, you have to wait till Sundays. So uh -huh. it's kind of cool to, to see them early. But, um, yeah, as far as this ep first episode goes, um, you know what I'll say, I think that episodes one and two, it should have been one of those situations where they premiered both episodes okay. yeah. on the same night because, I found I found the first episode to be kind of like low energy and mm -hmm. like um I don't know just not you know when you have when you take a show and you leave so many things on a cliffhanger at the end of one season when you pick up with the next season you better start answering questions and I don't think they really did with that first episode and so I don't know I found it sort of um almost as if it should have been tacked on to the end of last season. And episode two oh. is more like the real season opener for this season. Because let me tell you, episode two is is nuts. Absolutely nuts. Oh. Like, I, I'm really excited for you to watch it because um, there, yeah, there, I don't want to spoil it, but the oh. final scene of episode two is... Um, if you thought that 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 ear eating scene was bad, the the last season of epi or the last scene of episode two is Ooh. is that Ooh. but times a hundred. Fuck so. yeah, bro. Okay, I'm here for it. I am amped because I had been seeing the, some scuttlebutt, you know, from uh, like the the Yellow Jacket subreddit about some of the things happening, but I've been trying to hide you know myself as much as I can, you know, from spoilers in that regard. However, I do want to bring up, you know, like just to echo, like you are right. This first episode feels like it. They they should have done a Sam Levinson and had like, oh, it's a special episode in between the seasons, like he does mm -hmm. with Euphoria, you know, where, like where you kind of bridge the gap a little bit and then have a proper true, you know, season premiere, you know, following it up. Like I actually don't mind that kind of a format because yeah, like there's a lot of ground they have to cover to yeah make us okay with the cliffhanger they gave us at the end and wherever they're going to be going with it next because just hearing the voice of the ah, what's his name i can't think of his name because he wasn't in the episode but he, elijah, wood. elijah wood hearing elijah woods yeah. voice but not getting any getting to see him was such a cock tease and it bugged <laughs> me i wanted to see more of him but i do want to shout out my favorite moment from the first episode is cucked jeff coming back from like raiding his you know his wife's lover's like art shed where he had all of the portraits he made of her and jamming out to some pop roach you know tore my life into pieces this is my last resort in his car like a proper white american male it was just <laughs> hilarious and it was yeah just kind of meandering after that mm. i yeah but as far yeah, the what do you think of the new characters, the new girls? Do they actually find a place to belong? Or are they clearly just the ones who get chopped up and eaten? I'm glad you brought that up. I was totally going to bring the, those people up. Yeah, how they're suddenly they're suddenly giving the red shirts of the Yellow Jackets universe, like, lines of dialogue and, like, Names. tiny little... 
yeah names and little plot details like like soup girl who's always making the soup for everybody and um they're clearly all probably gonna die i i'd imagine and they're just trying to you know give them some bit of character development before we see them chopped up into pieces that would be my guess but um yeah the one thing i did want to mention is I, I do like the stuff that they're doing with um with uh shauna's husband um and stuff i mean he that guy that guy is like one of the mvps of the show along with uh christina ricci's adult misty um because i feel as if and it's it's always been this way where the teen girl timeline is way more interesting to me than the adults timeline but i feel as if that gulf is getting bigger now where the i like the you know the uh cabin teen timeline so much more than the adult stuff and every time the adults come on screen i don't know i'm just kind of like uh you know like this is this is fine but um i would much rather go back to that cabin and it's too much it, of a soap when, opera it's its problem yeah it, it like yeah the, if it had the same edge and urgency that it should have it should have edge and urgency because the flashback sequences do like they're just too settled and they're too comfortable and like laissez-faire about everything that happens around them like oh yeah my wife who's acting really freaked out about me won't even let me like talk to my son at school like oh why is she freaking out oh it's the weird altar with a dog's head that i've been keeping in my basement you know with my alt my alternate personality has been keeping in the basement there should be more from like a reaction and like a response to that than just oh you know because like, that's they just do react faces in the in the present mm -hmm. and it's just soap opera bullshit like i'm sitting there watching them in the the art shed getting all of his paintings out of there the dead lovers paintings shauna and jeff and i'm just like why are you fucking why are you fucking in the plate why are you leaving dna like i was just getting all you know, like you know, like t you know, what's the what's the term that they use in this for investigators like online investigators or like you know, like internet sleuths like all of those people like ar armchair detectives armchair detectives are just like yeah. these these fucking idiots like they're just they're leaving a breadcrumb trail right to them like why, <laughs> like, why are you why are you busting a nut in there like fucking the car like what well, come on but yeah, other yeah. than that like yeah it's th th there's a lot of things like that that are just you leave you wondering like okay do they have different people working on the different parts of the show because your know, writing rooms are kind of amorphous it's just a blob of people coming up with a product and it really does feel like they have the wrong sort of people like they need more they need to diversify a little bit move some of the yeah. soap opera people to the past to lighten the mood a little maybe but not too much and then get those edgy folk who actually know storytelling in the future setting the tone because i don't know these showrunners are high on their own supply they think they are so goddamn clever and like they engage way too much with their fan base in my opinion you know and like oh, yeah. and like entertain their theories a bit too much and i just worry that we are in another lost situation yeah i, I could i could see that i could see it turning out that way but especially i mean again once you watch episode two they start oh. they start bringing back the the supernatural stuff again Good. The, you know the maybe supernatural stuff. i mean you don't know if they're just tripping out on drugs uh off mushrooms or if there's you know shit actually going on but um i don't know if you had any predictions about where the show is going to go but i had i have two that okay. i want to get out there yeah. um the first one is i think that 
um, Shauna's daughter is gonna factor in somehow a lot more into this season because they're giving her a lot more screen time. And it makes me wonder, I don't know if they've ever actually addressed this, but is Shauna's daughter in the present timeline, is she the one who was born in the at the cabin? No, she could not have been. Because like, oh. based on where they are in the present, like that child would be in their 20s. Okay. Okay. This is this has been well thought okay. about by the fan base. She is not the wilderness baby, and the big mystery is what happens to it. Okay. 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 So that yeah. Do they eat I guess the baby, that... Matt? Do you think yeah, they maybe. eat the baby? Oh God! I it, it it could happen. I could see it happening. But um, yeah, it's there's something going on with her character because they're giving her a, a lot more screen time this season and they're going to do something with her daughter in some way. And then also my other sort of big prediction is that um, Javi is going to come. He is alive and he is going to come back into the fold of um, the girls because I think they're setting that up because they need to give uh lottie they, they need to give everybody else a reason to follow lottie to to believe that she, because she's the one who's saying that javi is alive while everybody else is saying he's dead so yeah. they need to make lottie into the um you know religious figure and for everybody to follow her so i think javi is going to be found alive no that's that seems to be pretty likely and i think what the he and this is based i'm getting this based on footage that was in trailers from season one that we never saw in season one going like mm. along stairs with like candles descending. And I think it's Lottie walking down those stairs in the shot and she's wearing like her like white gown. And that never showed up in season one. But I think what they're going to find on the mountain is that there's a mine there or something. And that is going to okay. be, and that there's going to be some kind of like vault or like you, you our hatch, you know, because it's this, like lost, unfortunately, and that's where Javi's gonna be surviving. Because I, I, or I don't know, either that or he's like running away. Because like I, I get the impression in season, like I haven't seen episode two, so I don't know, but that like patch of melted snow, like showing that someone had been sleeping there. <clears throat> so I don't. He's he's got to be out there. Yeah, but, he's out there. But yeah, like my my wonder, if I have one. I guess is yeah, like is, is is whether or not like Javi's going to show up in the present day because his brother got murdered, you know, and is he going to have revenge on his mind? Did he maybe have something to do with it? I don't know. Maybe episode two would tell me. Does it? It, Does it doesn't. It? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no. Okay. It doesn't. All right. Well, we'll, we'll... Although they do, they do revisit um, Travis's death in episode two. So, um, yeah, look forward to that. That is one of the really, really bonkers scenes of episode two. But um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess to to kind of cap this off, um, anybody who watched episode one, definitely, <laughs> definitely watch episode two, because I do I do really feel like a after I watched episode one, I was a little bit down on the show. And yeah. then once I saw once I saw episode two, I was like, OK, we're back. We're back now. Yeah. This is this is like Yellow Jackets season one territory now. We're we're not just treading water, even though yeah. season one did unfortunately tread water quite a bit in the middle, as I recall. So, I I have faith that they're gonna you know start putting pedal to the metal 
more frequently because it it did leave me somewhat wanting and i'm like they should have just done a two-hour premiere and just like put it all out on front street give the people what they want that's what we say at theater and stream and talking about giving the people what they want that's what dirty harry kind of did you know our boy don siegel you know directed it produced it and but really it is the the the, the full company of all the artists involved in this you got eastwood as the actor you got that that whole horde of ghostwriters involved in this project it's absurd the names that were involved in this but like you really got to give john milius the credit for making this character the 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 right wing boogeyman anti-hero that he is because there is a lot of rhetoric about how fascistic this movie is and how despicable its moral message is but when i look at like what like what they're taking issue with and like and what like what like the the events and plots of this movie you know is built around you have this person who is willing to you know murder priests and children and innocents and and then we're supposed to care that maybe he got assaulted by a policeman whose nickname is dirty harry because he's one of the most corrupt pig cops in, in the force in san francisco i don't think we really should care but look how beautiful san francisco looks back then and then compare it to now you know like what kind of law and order policy will you create you know like better created a more clean and comfortable and safe place to live i'm being only a little facetious and jokey here Mm -hmm. but the reality is i don't find the morals of this movie despicable especially in the light of day when i can watch real policemen's body camera footage as they run into a school and fold a a, you know a school shooter you know in like less than 15 minutes you know like that's the kind of person you want out there you want dirty harry's on the street sitting at a hot dog shop you know and knowing before they've even sat down that they're gonna have to walk outside and create a massive action movie shootout and then walk away with just some buckshot on your leg you know like you gotta have those people on that wall you need to have a few good men in this world even if they are bad people and harry callahan maybe not a bad person not the best but he's he's the hero that the 70s needed and he set the tone for all kinds of different characters over the years the anti-hero the anti-authoritarian you know like like you don't have john wick you know which was our first you know numbered review under this you know title you know unless you have dirty harry to begin with because you don't have death wish unless you have dirty harry i guess unless i'm wrong about which one came first but there's correct yeah you don't have all sorts of things you don't have you know judge dread you know is just the the complete it satirizes dirty harry obviously because the people who made this movie had a worldview very different from the critics of the time and very very different from the critics of today so i there might not be a future within you know cinema to appreciate this movie but i think people should just watch it enjoy it for what it is i delved i ducked my toes into politics because i couldn't help myself as i was watching it there was too many current events swirling around in my head too and i could only see the through line but this is you know groovy it's entertaining and it is a little stuffy here and there but you really get the sense of a of a like a greatest generation old you know head filmmaker realizing how fun and hip and cool he really could be you know when mm-hmm. he made a movie 
and I look forward to seeing more from the guy as we continue our retrospective. But what was your thoughts coming out of this? Yeah, I mean, same. I, I really, really enjoyed this. I was remarking to, to Chuck before we started that I think I have only ever seen this movie in bits and pieces on like TV edits throughout the years. And so it was nice to sit down and finally watch it. And, you know, I think to to appreciate Dirty Harry, to recognize Dirty Harry as a good movie, thinking, you know, you have to be sort of a like a student five. of film history because this film did so much for action movies along with the movies that came out around it such as Bullet and The French Connection and these these three movies did so much for like these action films around the time because you look at action films before this and they're so cheesy and like they're so um, static and you know the guys are punching each other but they're like a foot away from connecting and it, and then there's like the sound effects the really cheesy like womp sound effects when they hit each other and so yeah this this really was a step forward for not being cheesy and being like really realistic and grounded in reality and you know you have to think of this in a way of um, Don Siegel's career was so reinvigorated by the ending of the Hayes Code where, you know, the Hayes Code ended in 1968, which for people who don't know is basically the really, really strict, like, censorship laws that were on films from, I believe, the like, late 40s to the late 60s. And in 1968, that was all repealed, and all these filmmakers and you know this is kind of an example of that which is, you know we're going to be looking here at these the three movies that we're going to be reviewing for this don siegel retrospective at the golden age of this guy's career which is for which is strangely enough when he was like middle age when he was like above middle age like yeah. this that was the golden age of this guy's career so um yeah i mean great movie if if you want to watch this movie and, you know, screech about how it doesn't, like, line up with today's politics, I guess you can do that. But you really have have to have the maturity to be able to watch something like this and realize kind of where the world was, or where, not the world, where America was politically and where, you know, stuff like civil rights was, stuff like... Um, you know who was running the country at the time you just have to have the maturity to realize that things were different and that's it and you can still appreciate it beyond that even if you disagree with it and that's kind of where i'm at with it because to this movie's credit it gives an authentic view of what san francisco was at that time you know it was a very diverse you like it it it, it isn't it doesn't try and obscure the fact that gay people are there you know what I mean? Like, there's that one the, that one couple who are, like, on a date eating ice cream in the park while Scorpio is tracking them. But was it wrong of them to be so inspired by the Zodiac? You know, it, you know, it with a, you know, and, like, that whole situation with him threatening, you know, sending letters and, you know, trying to shake down the, the authorities and whatnot to, you know, give him what he wanted, but that that terror was still out there like this kind of thing really t you know, freaked people out and if it act and if zodiac had actually delivered on the the true terrorizing threats that zodiac had made like blowing up school buses 
yeah, like, I don't know. Like, what was it? Was that too too soon? Was it too close to home? Or is that part of its power? Yeah, I mean, I, I probably was because, you know, you have to think that when this movie came out, Zodiac was still like a very real threat because, you know, people, we, well, we still don't know who he, who he was, like, for sure. And so, but when this film came out, he was still out there probably more than likely he was still out there maybe he even saw this movie and loved it because he saw himself and um yeah it's it i think it adds to the effectiveness of the film um really because it people were so terrified by um serial killers in the 70s between well between late 60s early 70s zodiac and um the night stalker or the original night stalker um, and all the other serial killers who were just kind of working their way up and down the California coast. And it was, um, I'm sure a very, very real threat for people because they weren't caught back then. Mm -hmm. Um, because you know, stuff like, you know, DNA evidence, uh, surveillance, all that stuff hadn't come along yet. And so, yeah, it's, I, I'm sure it was fucking like terrifying seeing this movie back then. And so in, in a way part of the the appeal and a part of like how people confront their their genuine fears of the real world is they go to these movies that is how you confront the things you're scared about and so yeah i i was really appreciative of that because for a long time my only frame of reference for dirty harry like you was you know spike tv you know broadcasts or that snippet within the movie zodiac where um mark ruffalo's character like can't stand to be in the theater for five more minutes because he's seeing what hollywood has done with him <laughs> so in, in that way it, it is interesting i'd like to put those two movies together like that but i i want to just talk about the dynamism of the filmmaking here because yeah instead of being stuffy and like locked down they do really crazy things within the camera like the and like the like what did you think of I that, that bank robbery sequence how tight was that you're thinking did he like that, like, that should be like five. taught in school like in, i don't know film schools but the truth, I, I think that's pretty much like excitement. how they wrote the book right there didn't be in this is a 44 bag in the most yeah that that scene is amazing i mean the thing the thing that really stood out to me in that scene was how like far down the street the action goes or like the how how much they considered for that scene because there there's many shots in that scene that are clearly shot from above or shot from like a window of a building and you can just look down the street and you can see you know people moving about their day you can see cars you can see um bystanders you can see people reacting to what's going on and you know nowadays for a scene like that They'd, they'd, they'd lock down one Anybody square the block, they'd throw up a green screen, and then green screen all the background stuff, and call it a day. And for this, you know, they, they like locked down like three city blocks, and you know, filled them with people, filled them with cars, filled them with, you know, people, uh, newspaper people, or people going about their day, and it's just, there's so much considered. And everything, yeah, everything's suspect. real. Like you said, Denying there's, there's actually people milling about. You know, like, local yokels got to be for a day because they happen to be shooting in their neighborhood. And that's the kind of thing that doesn't happen in theater things anymore. You know, and 
Well, dang it. I think, unfortunately, I had some audio running, so I might have fucked up the episode a little bit. Sorry about that, guys. But uh, the another sequence worth hi- highlighting, of course, is the opening. The mm-hmm. the rooftop in San Francisco there, where it's it's just... It just slowly gets to, you know, the moment just you know, with very subtle editing. And that I don't know, the, the editing in this movie was also very impressive. But w- what did you actually think of Clint Eastwood's performance as Harry Callahan? Like, was it, did it remind you too much of his other, you know, you know stuff that he had done in the past? I, I don't think so. I mean, he's definitely saying a lot more than he ever did as Blondie or any anybody in one of the Sergio Leone movies, but um, so yeah, I think it's a different enough character. He's clearly like just entering middle age as he's because, you know, you can tell he's a little older in in this movie than some of his other ones. And um, but yeah, I thought he was, he was pretty decent. I mean, I love like the, the little bits of sort of humor that he, he does throughout the movie. Like the, the weird like peeping Tom scene where he's looking through the binoculars and there's like that woman in her apartment. And I guess I'm, I wasn't really sure what's going on there. Is it like the setup to like a threesome? Is that, or like a porno shoot or what was going on? Something there? like that. Yeah. Like yeah, there, okay. there was something, something kinky going on. Yeah. So, I mean, just stuff like that. And the, um, th- there's a lot of like, I don't know if you notice this, but there's a lot of like Christ-like imagery around yeah. his character, where like <laughs> when he's getting like the, beaten, uh, at, like at the foot of that giant cross. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. and like the the giant neon sign that says "Jesus saves," and it's very, very, uh, very interesting. Because Jesus would would say, "Hey, Harry, man, why you gotta why you gotta murder, dude? Like, come on." You know, and, and I guess that is kind of like why the, the morals of the character are so repugnant, because, you know, like a, a devout Christian would not be OK <laughs> with Harry Callahan oh, yeah, doing sure. what he's doing. And yet he is the only one, you know, you're standing up for Christendom. Yeah, that is a weird little like <laughs> symbolism to put in there. Oh, my God. Well, it's, it's strange because like we we are told we are we are outright told by his like one of his superiors that he's a racist you know like like harry callahan is a racist but you know it's it's interesting how we're only told that but we're not shown that like Mm -hmm. all of his actions throughout the movie are um and and you know for for some people that's enough like if you're if somebody says that in a movie you know that's enough for some people to go you know fuck this guy especially in 1970 you know like yeah yeah, like what was racist yeah like there was a lot of that was you're given a lot of leeway back then Mm -hmm. and so but he never actually i don't from what i can recall anyways he doesn't do anything we're never shown that that racism like he's fine with his partner his mexican partner yeah because he Um, he balks at having a partner period he's like hey people work with me and they die man like don't 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 give him to me and then because he's right because he gets shot and then he becomes a teacher you know, he saves his life. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's interesting in that way where, and then he also, I think the guy also remarks that he's like an e- equal opportunity racist. And I noticed that there's a scene in the movie. It's one of those, those nighttime scenes when they're running through the street and 
uh, he like he runs into a guy and he says like get out of my way hammerhead yeah 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 I, yeah I was like I was like what is that like I've never heard that before like what is that what does that term mean what does that slang mean and so I looked it up and it's a it's a um, like slur for a Scandinavian American so it's 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 interesting how he doesn't he really doesn't give a fuck I mean he'll he'll he doesn't like anybody and um that's kind of i don't know that that's the that's the point at which i'm probably i'm willing to say that this movie is politically incorrect yeah but i don't know if i'd go so far as to say it's outright racist yeah it it's just edgy you know like it, it's like I, I it's like sam hyde you know it's million dollar extreme or whatever but it's 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 more transgressive and worthwhile than like you know what's that daily wire movie uh what the, the school shooting movie like what is yeah, it like, like run hide fight that's what it's called yeah, yeah. like it, it, that just screams to you know insipid and weird i don't know I, I actually haven't seen it so i really shouldn't judge it but you know in here it it rings more genuine and i think that's because of the the people who wrote on this can we i know we had their names up there but yeah what the fuck man like how do you have all of those people work on a script and not give them credit yeah, it's it's interesting because the the movie has three credited writers, um, including a husband and wife uh, team of writers. Um, let's see, their names were Harry Fink and R. M. Fink, and that was like a husband and wife writing partners. They worked a lot with Siegel. We're, we might see their names come up again yeah, in the other movies that we do. don't want to put a naked on the camera. Hey, God. <laughs> okay, let's watch. And then. Over um, here. So what Chuck was referring to is uh, Terrence Malick did an uncredited rewrite on this film um, where they threw out a lot of his ideas. Apparently Malick wanted, yeah, apparently he wanted the killer to be um, like a more motivated killer who would go after rich people that have gotten away with crimes. Oh, so kind of, kind of make him a hero, huh? Is that what I'm hearing here? Yeah. And interesting. what's interesting is they they actually used a lot of Malik's ideas for the sequel to Dirty Harry. Mm. Um, so which uh, one was you, that? Like sudden impact? Uh, is it Magnum Force? Magnum Force, yeah, yeah, okay. Magnum Force. And um, so they did actually end up using a lot of Malik's ideas for the sequel. But then also, as you said earlier, John Milius did a, a rewrite of the movie. Um, actually, not so much a rewrite, but he essentially punched up the film's dialogue. He's responsible for the "Do you feel lucky?" punk scene, and he's responsible for a lot of the dialogue in the film. So the iconic, uh, yeah, and, and that gun is John Milius's gun. Is it really? Yes. Okay, I didn't know that. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. No, it's in a museum now. But yeah, like that, that's how much he contributed to the line. And they were like, "Well, we're filmmakers. We don't know what these guns are." And he's like, "Well, here, I have one. Take it." And, and now, yeah, now it's in a museum. Yeah, I got I got a kick out of that particular fact. But what what I found shocking in looking at the the reaction to the movie was that because like Sam Peckinpah was a, a Don Siegel like understudy, he was yes. his like montage director and things like that, and he was totally like pearl clutching about this movie, despite you know loving it. Yeah, you know, he still couldn't believe that such a terrible piece of trash could you know have been made by someone he respected, but. I, and I, I don't know, like, I don't know how you could call this movie trash at, you know, at any time. Like, 
it, it had so much substance, you know, to it. And it challenged, it challenged, challenges now, I'm sure it challenged them. And uh, I, and, it, and yet it's an influential action movie. You know, it, it, it made Clint Eastwood like a proper action movie star to the point that he was still making these movies until he was like 60. Mm -hmm. like yeah, he, it's, it's interesting because like, I think that there's a lot of people when this film came out because it was so highly regarded by the public and it was so popular that there's a lot of critics that, wow. you know, with one, with one eye, they want to, you know, watch the film. And then with the other eye, they want to keep it closed while they're writing their essay about why the movie's bad. And so, I, I don't know. It just reminds me like a lot of like, like they have to acknowledge that it is good but at the same time they want to be like appalled by it but they can't they can't 100 percent be appalled by it it kind of reminds me of like we were talking earlier about succession and when succession first started in its first season i remember there was people and you know you know who you are because there was a lot of people out there that didn't like the show or pretended like they didn't like the show at first because you know they were all like why would i want to watch rich people be horrible this show sucks you know and you know there was numerous like essays and like think pieces written about it and then at a certain point those people had to go out and delete those and change their opinion because it's so highly regarded and that's like the exact same situation with this movie and yeah and i, I think is if you looked at the totality of both of their, you know, careers, you know, the, you know, the, the, the star and the filmmaker behind this, you know, this part, did he work on other dirty Harry movies? Or like all of them or just a few of them? Eagle. Yeah. I think just this one, just this one. Okay. Yeah. Cause he still had a, a very prolific partnership with, you know, Eastwood going forward and worked yep. with a lot of other, you know, really important and prominent filmmakers and actors and whatnot. And he, an underappreciated dude. Like I, I was really sleeping on this guy, you know. And it, it yeah, maybe, same. And maybe it was just because his name was Don. I don't know. <laughs> but I, I also haven't seen enough '70s film. That is my blind spot. Because believe it or not, I've seen a lot of like black and white old shit. Like my parents were really into that when we first got Netflix. I even saw the Philadelphia Story. You know, like have you ever seen that movie? It's really boring. I haven't no <laughs> but it would best pick but but that's what i love about the 70s it's like this is where cinema really grew up you know like, yes. th this is where like the image comics revolution happened you know like th this is where all the good stuff really you know started coming to the fore but like what i appreciate about this is how it still was it had its feet still in the past a little bit even though it was you know also taking strides and playing with what was possible you know with the format and and with the genre even so then really glad that we selected you know this one for our retrospective yeah same i uh i did want to touch on um i think one of the other like big puzzle pieces of this film is andrew robinson's performance as as the killer um and he yeah he's just fantastic i mean that guy i don't know you you've of course you've seen hellraiser right mm-hmm yeah, same guy from from uh, I think he plays Larry in Hellraiser, yeah. and um, he yeah he has such a unique face where he you know he doesn't have the look of a serial killer, but when he's like in the middle of a fit, you can totally see it. And yeah. I just 
you you already alluded to the scene, but the scene that really sold me on on his acting was the scene where he's like spying on the two gay guys in the park with his uh, his scope, his his rifle scope. And there's a there's a moment in that scene where he loses sight of them because they walk in front of some trees, and he just starts like having a little meltdown because he can't see them anymore because he he can't acquire them in his scope anymore and then you know 30 seconds later they come back into view and everything's okay again yeah and he's he's fine and so i don't know that scene really sold me on him and yeah he was he was fantastic and um so i want i did want to give a shout out to him and um because you actually get to yeah, live I'm, in those moments with them like that's like this you can tell that this movie was made in the past because mm -hmm. there's not a thousand cuts and a bunch of quippy dialogue you know, bashing your head in every five seconds. You you like you get settled into scenes. Like you're actually like in the this dude's day where he's like, Oh, I had a long day. Time to go get my usual lunch, you know, after you know, clocking out. And you they you go through every step of that process. Or like with Scorpio, when he's just doing his thing and like, you know, trying to find his next victim. Yeah, you know, like mm -hmm. the, you get settled into moments. And, you, and it's not just moving on to the next thing every like second every frame of this thing so it, it appreciate the techniques of the past and the aesthetics of the past because they are immune to the the, the blob product that we're getting out of everybody <laughs> else like I don't know like I, I haven't seen the Russo brothers other work outside of Marvel I didn't I haven't seen the gray man. But does the gray man give you the impression that we could have a, like that kind of like action movie again, or does it still just feel like a Marvel movie? Yeah, it's I yeah the gray man. This is not a sidebar, good. but it, like it's, yeah. it's pertinent to I guess the qualities that I'm like appreciating. I guess yeah. Um, you know the I, I don't think the gray man was very good. I've seen both the gray man and then also their Apple TV Plus movie that they did called Cherry with um yeah. Um, Spider-Man and uh, I thought that was a little better because it was more unique but um, yeah I mean I don't I think if if you want to make a comparison to you know the, the more interesting action films that are coming out in more recent times I would probably point to like you know Mad Max Fury Road mm -hmm. or something like that where um, you know that's something that was so you know so unique and so different and nobody expected it and that's kind of the parallel i would draw as far as modern action movies go but then you have to you know you really have to think about it and that movie was like seven years ago so it's like and, it's and like it was like it, 15 in the making too like that was the other part yeah. of that story so we don't i mean really we don't get stuff like that you can draw parallels to this very often anymore which is unfortunate because the like I compare like a modern remake of a classic like RoboCop to its original incarnation. And I am fucking glad I'm not like I'm knocking on wood. Hollywood better not make another Dirty Harry movie. Don't oh, don't God. do it. Leave the man alone. He has served. You know, he has been counted. <laughs> we have already like sent his body off on the like on the, the bonfire boat like. This is a part of pop culture that should remain rooted in what it was. It doesn't need our postmodern lens to turn it into something completely other from what it was. It's like it needed to be like it's a relic of its time for a reason, and it didn't. It shouldn't just be tossed out. 
Like, even though I'm sure a lot of people are ready to, because I can only imagine the kind of tripe they would make if they put, yeah. like, I don't even, I don't even want to speculate about who they would put <laughs> in charge of a Dirty Harry remake, let alone who they would have star. But I, I feel like it would kill Clint Eastwood. He's not going to make it to his last, you know, movie. He would just, you know, put, he would just grab that bolt gun and just, you know, unlife himself or something. But, ugh. Well, Let's um, I guess as as we sort of wind down, close out here. Um, let's pull on that thread a bit. Do you think that this film is really destined to lose its iconic status in say the next 30, 20, 30 years because you know because of its politics or because of its you know the impressions people gather from it because. I feel as if this movie was talked a lot more about in the past and it was more highly regarded in the past. And I feel like that's fallen off a bit in recent years. And I, I really wonder, you know, if there's ever going to be a point where people like just get to the point where they want to forget about it and they don't yeah. even want to, they don't even want to acknowledge it in any aspect. Like, um, you know, it turns into like the equivalent of, um, like birth of a nation or something like that, yeah. where people don't even want to, I mean, there's a lot of problems with that film, but people don't even want to regard that film in any way. People don't even want to hear that it exists nowadays. Like they, they don't want to see it. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to acknowledge its presence. And do you think that we'll ever get to that point with this film? I think it's, you know, it's either quite likely or not likely at all, which is, you know, it's, it's a superposition because mm -hmm because of how modern politics are yeah you would think it would lose influence and lose you know relevance but this is also one of those you know situations where if it's available and people can rediscover it i could easily see modern audiences really grabbing hold of a good old harry callahan and making him their own again and caring about him again it just would take all it would take is the right influencer like you just have to have you know, Ben Shapiro talk about Harry Callahan on his YouTube show or something, and before you know it, people are going to be you know banging down their streamer's door to to watch this, and the algorithm is going to get all out of whack because yeah they were shifting Harry Callahan to the the dump section, and you know all of his you know move, but then we're going to get a nice Blu-ray 4K package release, you know we're gonna and then they're going to start thinking about remaking it because they want that right wing audience. And that is who this is going to appeal to if it's going to appeal to anybody. But yeah. even at, at the same time, I think he is even measured compared to the rhetoric from some people today. You know, if I could, could see, I, I don't know. I think people need to be more open. I just want more people to enjoy the movie. Just watch it. Yeah. Leave your, leave mm -hmm. your bullshit at the door. You know, it, it'll, it'll come back up, you know, when you walk out of the theater. But just watch that man mouth his hot dog as he kills a bunch of guys. It's awesome mentionables is that yeah we'll be what movie are we doing next the it's shootist the shootist starring john wayne for don siegel so if you care about that look that up and watch along with us but for the mentionables this week we have sadness sad news because yet again we're not going to have e3 that cultural institution like where are the booth babes going for work oh they're all on only fans now <laughs> Yeah, I mean this uh, this is a little bit, a little bit something different from me this week. Where, um, you know, I 
this this week it spelled the end for E3 essentially. E3 was the big video game show that happened every June in LA and essentially partly due to COVID and then partly due to every video game company realizing that they can just put out live streams, the show has kind of died. And they announced that this year it's it's pretty much done. It's 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 done so. It's it's not coming back. It was supposed to this year, but uh, one by one, all of the companies started pulling out in the last week or so. And so this is sort of a mentionable in two parts. The first part is just kind of a dedication to the show. You know, I always enjoyed watching it on, you know, back in the day, watching it on G4 TV, on, mm. on cable TV. And then more recently, just watching the streams of the press conferences on YouTube um, and, you know, just you got a shitload you got a year's worth of video game news in the span of three days and it was always awesome but my favorite part and this is the second part of my of the mentionable favorite part every year was sort of the cringe factor of e3 press conferences because you had you put these you know awkward nerdy people up on a stage and they make jokes that miss all the time. They do like weird things. There's technical difficulties. There's, you know, um, I watched some of these moments live and died inside the whole yeah, time. Yeah. And so it's just, it, it's, it's amazing to watch because we don't get stuff like this with these new sort of pre canned live streams that all the video game companies do now. And so, um, go on YouTube and just search E3 cringe compilation because that is that's my real mentionable here because you can watch any of them they're all good they're usually um arranged by year by the year that they came out in and they are incredible just the funniest things ever and my personal favorite is um when bethesda had an andrew wk concert during their press conference and everyone in the crowd just sat there stone-faced and they did because they didn't know what to do because it's Andrew WK and yeah. it was just you got to be in hilarious. the mood for that man. You have to, you know, be a few keg stands deep before Andrew WK sounds like a good idea, especially if yeah. you've been walking around a show floor and you know being around a bunch of strangers all day long. God, yeah. So shout out to Longo Coney because that's the one that I, I pulled from, and I am gonna miss all of these things. I remember being on my computer, my family computer. We were staying up late into the night because I wanted to see the announcement of whatever the revolution was and how big of oh, a yeah. deal it was when, you know, when I think it was Iowata just like holds up the, the, the Wii for the first time and your jaw mm -hmm. drops because you had seen what Sony and Microsoft had been putting out and there were these behemoths, the 360 yeah. and the, and the PS3 at that time. And then like, that, that, yeah, the, the console wars, like there was the GameSpot coverage of you know of all of this was always a place I went to as well, and game trailers and G4 and it, all that 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 whole world is just nostalgic for it. But also, at the same time, I'm glad I don't spend a lot of my time on these websites anymore. <laughs> my yeah. mentionable yes. is a little more low key, also a little weird. Um. I had bought this a long time ago and forgotten about it, but I went to a thrift shop in Bismarck and I found this self-published book called World War 2.5 Spit Weasel Survives. And just look at that 
I know it's, it's a little blurry, but look at that magnificent man. That man, his name is Wayne Gehring. I don't know if he's still living, but you can see the the old IBM like gateway computer that he wrote this book in, behind like in this promo image, and it, this was written after 9/11, and it is written in the most stilted, awful style, but it was worth the read just because I knew that some weirdo in the year like in the year 2002 had decided he was going to do this this is how it begins god it's great out here the sun poured out of the sky and singed his open body he lay there in his nylon patio chair arms stretched over his head in a wide v-shape his legs extended like a ballet dancer he maximized his stretch while the sun rays seemed to find and infiltrate every tiny pocket and crevice of his body and somehow this is about like i don't like terrorism and the end of the United States and how you have to, you know, save your rainwater to fight the man. You can buy it for $35 on Amazon. <laughs> I spent a buck on this thing. So maybe you're better off not. But yeah, Spitweasel survives. Whoa, I just threw it. I don't care. I'm not going to read it ever again. And neither should you. <laughs> it's a good, uh, it's a good thing. It's a good conversation piece. Exactly. Put it on your shelf. <laughs> I also have this really cool thing that I, I should show off that this guy made. It was like it's like the the 60s or the 70s, I swear. Like where it's like like drawings of nice rocks I found. And I <laughs> it's like who does this? What was your pick of the week? Oh man, you know it, it's probably it's got to be succession, I think. You know, this is this is the beginning of the end, people. And um, it's, uh, you know, if you're not on the succession train already, jump on now because this is the show where the second that the finale is done with, it's going to be like, does Tony Soprano live or die levels of spoilers that are going to be out there? I, I know, like, people are just immediately going to spoil the hell out of it. And so if you're not on the succession train, there's still time, you know, the the um, actual finale isn't for another nine weeks. You can blaze through the first 30 episodes of the show between now and then. So do it. Absolutely. Okay. Just because I know this is what I'm going to watch as soon as we're you know done here. And I try and clean up my audio flub from the beginning of the Dirty, Dirty Harry segment. I think we all should just be watching Yellow Jackets, especially now that I know the second episode is unhinged. Because I've read Spitweasel. I can handle anything at this point, but I'm willing to test that. Um, we are Theater and Stream. Thank you all for watching, you know, joining us. And we'll be back here next week to talk about Don Siegel's The Shootist. Thank you, Matt, yep. for joining me. And everybody have a good week. Yep. See ya. <laughs>